Welcome to episode six of From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. Today's guest is John Garish, Director of Athletic Development and Head Track and Field Coach at North Broward Preparatory School. On today's show, we discuss the concept and creation of Speed School, a free session he runs for surrounding youth to enhance both speed and athletic qualities. We also discuss his philosophy on speed training and the development of speed. John uses a lot of differing methods such as wickets and switches, so we dive into his rationale behind that. We also examine how he sets his athletic population up for success with purposeful programming. This is an episode full of great information, so without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to episode six of From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis, and today I sit down to talk about athletic development with John Garish. How you doing, coach? Good, Jesse. Appreciate you having me on, man. This is a I'm I'm excited that you got this off the ground, um, and I'm I'm honored that I would be one of your your first six, whether I was invited at any point or not. It's I've seen the the list of um, who you've had on, and it's been an incredible group. Um, so I'm honored that you would you would include me in that, and I appreciate your time and just the opportunity to catch up, man. It's it's, it's great to meet and discuss some points. Yeah, thank you for sitting down. I know you're in the middle of a hectic time. You're in the middle of track season, just getting through your regional. So thank you for taking time out of your day to sit down and discuss things with me. So if you would, Coach, if you would just start out, just give us a basic introduction about who you are, where you're located, and the athletic populations that you serve. I'm at North Broward Preparatory School, which is in Coconut Creek, Florida pretty close to my hometown. It really is my hometown. I mean, it's, it's the, the school that I work at, um, is a stone's throw just about from the house that I grew up in. I didn't go to North Broward. I was vaguely familiar with the school growing up. It is a small private school. I knew some people that went there growing up, but again, that, you know, the, the school was somewhat new to me. Um, at least certainly in how I had heard about an open position seven years ago and, you know, the opportunity to get back home, and be back in South Florida was a big, um, it was very meaningful to me. So that was important to me. I wanted to get home. Um, I did think at that time that I wanted to work at the college level. That changed quite a bit, certainly in my, probably in my first couple months of working at North Broward, even if I was kind of, you know, the first initial interview, kind of first few conversations, I was like, it's a high school level for me. Um, and then I would say it was definitely no more than two months that I, I knew that this was somewhere I wanted to be for a long, long time. So it didn't take long. And now I guess I have been there a long time. It's, it seems crazy that seven years has, has flown by so fast. And I'm sure the next seven and the seven after that and the seven after that will fly just like these. But I, I'm in a great spot. I love it. I love being home. I work in addition to that. I, I see a lot of our um, young people in, in neighboring communities as well. Um, I know we'll talk about some of our speed school and, and additional training that I do in the community. That's uh, also that that really, to be honest with you, that's probably in terms of the scope of why I wanted to come back home. That's that's a large bit to do with it. Number one, it's home and it's South Florida. And, you know, I realize we're approaching May now and it's it's 90 degrees outside. But through February, it was nice weather, too. So, you know, being back close to home, being close to family, being close to a lot of the friends that, you know, I grew up with and and stay close with to this day. Um, and being able to continue to grow as a professional was was something that was really important to me. But also being able to ideally and, and you know, and in, in the best case scenario, be able to give back to my community, something that was meaningful to me as well. So I, I feel as though, you know, I feel blessed to be able to do that in the school that I work at. You know, I feel as though I'm, I'm giving back to some some kids in the community and then also um, being able to work with some some neighboring students, being able to 
give back in that way as well has been um, something that's really meaningful. I've been here again, like I said, seven years as the director of athletic development at North Broward Prep. Um, and I've been the school's head track and field coach for the last five. So strength and conditioning started first. Um, that was the position that I, uh, it's a full-time position, had first been, you know, kind of alerted to here. And then, like I said, just a couple years after working here, the track and field program, um, our coach who I, I still speak to and look up to just retired. And so somebody else had to take over the program and really good conversation with my athletic director and I at that time. Um, and again, like I said, five years later, now I'm, I'm heading up both of those. So it's where we're at. Yeah, a lot of the things you said there, I, I can kind of agree with because I actually coach in my hometown. I, I moved off, uh, really wasn't even looking to get into education. Next thing I knew, I was in education. I was getting involved in uh, athletics and, and coaching and all those different things. And I can echo the sentiment of wanting to come home and be a part of your community and help to see the youth in your community grow and strive and prosper. I live in a very rural area. So to, to push kids to want to actually get out and, and get a degree and better themselves uh, is it's something that's really been near and dear to my heart and kind of one of my driving purposes and what I do. So that, that's kind of one of the things that kind of led me to you because I, I know you're really heavily involved in the community. So I think a natural thing that you've already referenced here is the idea of speed school. So I'd like to start everything out with that because that's kind of community outreach, getting involved in the community. So how did speed school come about and why did you feel led to start something such as speed school? There's a, there's a bunch of people in this community that I really look up to and, you know, just you're kind of sitting in a similar position of, you likely, like I do, we still have some of our mentors, meaning like from a young age, mentors that were a large part of my upbringing in hand in hand with my parents, you know, some people that I looked up to and listened to every bit as much as I listened to my parents and, and probably had almost as much to do with the person I am today. I'm still able to discuss and, and meet with some of those coaches and now they've moved on from coaching maybe, but, you know, so it really, I think that that, that seed might've been planted when I was really young. I mean, I, I'm sure just like you, I mean, we grow up around people that don't necessarily have the same vision as us. And so even in that time as a, you know, 10 to 15 year old, and even into high school up until I was 18 years old, you have people that you grow up with, play sports with, that it's like, why don't you, why don't you get it? Like, why don't you understand what opportunities are you have in front of you? Um, so I think even at that time, like seeing some of my buddies that some of us, some of them, unfortunately, aren't here with us anymore. Some of us, some of them are in situations that are nowhere near um, where they could have been. Some of them are in not the best places right now. So really thinking back, that's probably where it really started, where it, and really, even if you could go beyond that, I think just seeing how my parents treated the local community and wanting to do some things like they had done when I was super young. Um, but again, kind of just seeing that and understanding that there's so many kids that it's just, it's, it's a, it's a continuous cycle, which sometimes it can be unfortunate. And hopefully I, in an ideal scenario, we can kind of flip that cycle on its head and, and turn it to be more positive. But you know, you see time and time again, I mean, my, some of my, probably the, and I grew up playing football. Football was really my primary sport growing up. Probably the 10 best players that I ever played with athletically probably didn't even go to college. And, you know, that's such a, obviously there's 
there's more to life than that, but it's a shame that their life could have been on a better path by going to get an education and using their skills and talent to get there instead of being wrapped up in the wrong environment and getting caught up in the wrong situation. So again, understanding that and being just a peer at that time when I was young, there's only so much I think that you can do. You got some friends that you can kind of lift up to your level and you have probably some friends at that time that I don't speak to anymore because sometimes I was seeing myself fall down to their level, which you don't want to be in either. So coming back um, when I had initially gotten back to North Broward, there were some friends of mine, a few years older guys that I looked up to and still do that were doing some really good things in the community, in the neighboring community that they were doing basically like a free sports training. And that's Delray B sport exhibitors um, that I really, really just really enjoyed what they were doing. I was able to come out. They welcomed me with open arms to come do basically whatever I wanted with from a warm up, speed development standpoint before they kind of went into like almost an all sports camp on Sunday afternoons, which was incredible for a few years. And then good things happened to those men, business ventures and things like that, that it had halted a, a few years ago now. Um, and I really just felt like I was, I, I had a void and I felt like I was really missing that component. So under the direction of them and really their guidance and, and their help, I started up these Saturday trainings. The name Speed School actually kind of started as a joke. I had a young man that was at, at one of our students at North Broward um, that is still playing football at a high level that we just kind of had fun with it. And it was something that we started a Saturday Speed School. And then eventually we, I kind of just opened it up to some uh, families that I knew with children that weren't necessarily at our school. Um, and then quickly that kind of led into meeting more kids and then meeting more parents. And then the most important thing that came from it was collaborating with, with coaches and just community members, largely not only because now it added an opportunity for us to collaborate, learn and grow from each other, but also it now all of a sudden it wasn't just a because in that position, I don't necessarily, although I love, I, I absolutely love being a representative of North Broward Prep. I will, I will always be proud um, to be a representative, but we have such a, um, I don't want to use the word epidemic or pandemic, but down here we have such a, there is so much recruitment that goes on from high school to high school that I just don't want anyone to think that like the reason for me ever doing that is so that we can rope in some kids that we can bring to our campus. That's not how that's not the model of our school. That's not who I would ever be or what I stand for. So collaborating with local coaches, now all of a sudden you have a, co a couple coaches that might bring their whole team. You know what I mean? There's a couple coaches that have brought their whole, whole track team to come and train with me on Saturdays, which has been incredible. And then all of a sudden now that stems and more students start to come, more children start to come, more coaches gain trust, trust, they communicate with their parents. And now, you know, it's, it becomes a community thing. So before I get too get you know too much on a tangent here, I think uh, largely the, the the bigger thing was just kind of introducing something on Saturdays that young men and women can be busy. First, you know, um, and I'm talking about instead of doing the things that they could be doing on Friday nights, maybe they they think, okay, I got to wake up on Saturday morning and come in and train with Coach Garish. Or instead of being in the neighborhood on Saturday, hey, I'm going to go train with Coach Garish or coaches and go through speed school. It's not about me. So just having something that they have a place to go to um, and then instilling some positivity is, a, is something that I feel like is really important on Saturdays too. Um, not just in the individual, but from a societal standpoint, we have so many students that come from so many different walks of life from students at North Broward Prep 
to students at a local public school to Title I schools down the street um, that run the gamut from a diversity standpoint, from a socioeconomic di diversity standpoint, that it's, it's good to see everybody come together to have kind of a shared goal, which is what sports does in itself. But to come over, to come together on Saturdays and, and just train. And again, that's not something that I charge for. Um, the kids know it's free. The families know it's free that we can come together and spend some time together. And, and it's really presented some very positive outcomes. Yeah, that's that's all great stuff to hear. The the idea of community involvement and giving the community something to get behind, uh, regardless of where you're from or the socioeconomic uh, status that you are titled with. So the idea of just cohesion and and a group and and giving the youth something to throw themselves into and be productive with, because idle time, <laughs> idle hands can be destructive, uh, especially with with youth whenever they're being pulled a uh, hundred different directions. So that's kind of how we look at it with football as well whenever our kids come up to train in the summer it gives them something productive to continue to push with all this idle time that they have but also obviously you need rest as well so it's, it's a time for rest and recoup but keeping yeah. people on the right path as well so all those things are are great to hear and that's a great thing that you're doing I, I know you've gotten a lot of uh, attention for that and uh, rightfully so because it's it's a great thing uh, that you're doing down there and it's promoting a lot of good ideas so with a name like speed school I would obviously like to spend a little bit of time talking to you about speed programming and your overall philosophy on the development of speed of athletes. Awesome. That's a loaded question for sure. We're going to jump a couple of places. So if you, if you just want to talk about your ideas on speed, yeah. how, how best to train it, because we're going to talk about uh, wickets and all that. Yeah, stuff. Going, absolutely. So down here in South Florida, speed is everything. Okay. So I go, I, I, my, my sessions right now could be everywhere from Dade County, which I don't think needs any introduction the players that have come from Dade County, the typical um, athletic traits that kind of come with coming from Dade County, usually you got a lot of speed, right? So that's that's typically, if people know South Florida um, high school football, and that's not just Dade, forget about it. What Broward County is doing right now, what Palm Beach County has been doing for a long time, which is something that I'm going to discuss in a second too, a region in Palm Beach County. So speed is like the name of the game down here. Look at some of those schools from Dade to Broward to Palm Beach. You look at a, a, a region uh, such as the Glades, which is Pahokee, Glades, uh, Bell Glade, um, Clewiston area. The area surrounding Lake Okeechobee is Palm Beach County. I'm not going to go into a whole like lesson of Florida history and things like that. But if you if you watch like almost everything that they've 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 had, you know, 30 for 30s and ESPN specials on different regions of South Florida and how speed is always something that kind of is what our our young people pride themselves in from an athletic standpoint. That is something that generally again kind of comes with them. You know, speed is speed is the name of the game down here. It is generally, if you get a recruit from South Florida, you, you probably expect that they come with some speed. So knowing that, I mean, again, it, it all, you know, um, thankfully for me, um, because I'm very proud of it being from down here, that is just something that kind of, I grew up with, like I knew it, you know, it was, I was slow when I was young and I had to find a way to get fast because otherwise I wasn't going to keep up with everyone around me in South Florida. Everyone I grew up with knew the same thing. Today, it's the same thing. All right. And then sort of when I won't get too into it, but in college, I had a couple injuries and couldn't play football anymore. I picked up track. All right. I actually ended up as a hammer thrower. That was my primary event. But that was my that was really honestly my first experience in track and field. Now, fast forward, like I said, I 
was going the strength and conditioning route a couple years into the position that I'm in today still took the the track and field kind of conversation and program opening really change it changed up my lens and kind of just the scope that I see through to now understanding like okay yes speed was certainly a component of my programming in our strength and conditioning off-season programming now it is what my responsibility is as their coach on the track. Um, so that really changed the scope, not just of my approach to training that also changed. I mean, obviously your approach changed, probably your annual programming is going to change, but my annual schedule just was, I don't want to say flipped on its head, but it changed quite a bit. So now it's okay. Yeah. I also see through the lens of a track coach that I'm recruiting our students you know, if a football player is crushing it in the summer, hey, you're probably going to be a track athlete for me in the spring. So we are, there is that piece that I'm always kind of seeing through that lens. Um, but also understanding that through from my months of really just about January to maybe June, certainly at least until spring football, which is going to start here in a couple of weeks, late April, early May, that's going to be a time that's devoted um, to improving linear speed and in particular because we're out on the track. So even our, like, even if you're not competing in the hundred meter dash at a track meet on Friday or Saturday or whatever day the meet might be, if you're an off season athlete for us, you're still training with the track and field program. So that takes the place of our strength and conditioning program at that time. So we're still lifting, but the commitment is a little bit more shifted in the favor of linear speed development at that time. So it has changed my kind of outlook on yearly annual training and programming. But also, again, I think other things kind of just caught up in that mix of that. You had mentioned off air, Tony Holler, meeting Tony Holler, meeting some other coaches that, you know, connecting with the coaches at Altus, connecting with some other coaches that we're in a similar position as I with the strength conditioning and track and field program at their local high school. Um, just seeing coaches and really just getting to know one of the things that I say often is one of the biggest changes for me from a networking standpoint was realizing that I was going to track meets on Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, whatever it was. And I saw some coaches as just a high school track coach with a polo on. And then quickly I had some conversations with those coaches and understood that they had forgotten more about speed development than I had even learned or even heard or even heard suggested that now from a networking standpoint, understanding that there's some coaches and I already discussed that speed school, how I'll try to rope some of those coaches in and be able to collaborate with them. But even just being able to talk shop with some coaches that local High school track coaches down here are doing things that are, are just phenomenal for the development of their kids that also now I'm bringing that into our strength and conditioning program. Also now that definitely has had its um, influence on our, our speed school Saturdays um, that that has been a big change for me. So again, I know we're going to go into more specific details, but probably from a general wide scope um, that that has been a big change over those five years of coaching track and field, but it's also been something, you know, speed development's always been something that's kind of been important to me. It's certainly been important to me, um, but probably not as much as I invest in it now. And also a lot of my just kind of personal preferences or thoughts on training has changed quite a bit as I've gotten into track and field. And as I've seen really 
if, if we're truly improving, you know, I know coaches will, will speak to fly tens, fly twenties, fly thirties, uh, even 40 yard dash. There's some ways to disguise in there um, some improvements in numbers, but that aren't necessarily presenting improvements in speed, especially out on the field. Um, you just can't hide in track and field, which is, is something that I really love about the sport. Yeah, with, with Coach Holler's podcast coming on before yours, a lot of the things that, that you discussed, I, I know you and Coach Holler have a good relationship. A lot of things that you discussed there, they make a lot of sense. We spoke, we spent a little bit of time talking about the role of the weight room in developing speed and how to do that. And with you starting as an SNC person first and having a football background and then moving into track, all that makes a lot of sense what you're saying there. The fact that being a high school SNC coach, a lot of the times – it is good to be extremely general because you have a population, you know, that is not fully developed whenever you get your hands on them. So you do have to be a bit of a generalist, which a lot of the times pushes you to drive for more strength, strength, strength adaptations until you take a step back and you think about it and, and you realize how true power development is going to come be driven by speed, actually. So a lot of the things that you said there, as far as the way that you flipped it on your head, that's really refreshing to hear. Some SNC coaches are doing that now. Some still don't do it. But with you being an SNC coach, also involved in track and field, I can see how that's a really good marriage and how that's really driven you more towards speed development in a natural sense in your annual programming. Yeah, and it's it, it really has, you know, that – I'm a person that still we are going to commit to our strength development in the weight room on a 12 month annual basis. That is, that is always going to be in our program. Now, again, as the track and field coach, I've, I've now understood that that at least at that time of year, that is now secondary to what has to happen on the track. And also I'm not going to get on like a, uh, I'm not going to get off on a tangent again, but I think that also is one of the things that I saw early on, either through my athletic career or early coaching career, especially at the college level, the high school level, it's probably a little bit different. But I think in places where people in track and field and strength and conditioning really commit to continued development uh, and continued education, I should say, um, I think oftentimes track and field coaches and strength and conditioning coaches have a slight barrier between them. And sometimes there's conflict in their professional relationship. And I think largely it's because track and field coaches are very in tune with understanding volume as our strength and conditioning coaches, but sometimes communication, there's a communication lapse. So as the, as the person that does both, it makes it easy, but also I think that's kind of something that even if I am back to being just a strength and conditioning coach and not coaching the track and field program or the other way, which is, quite possible too, um, being a track and field coach and not necessarily the person in the weight room. I think it, it has helped me in my communication with my sport coaches um, because, you know, like our football coach, especially he's awesome. He's one of my best friends. He just wants his guys to get stronger, faster. And however I do it, he's going to be fine with. I don't necessarily think that if somebody else was our track and field coach, the conversation would be that simple. And I can understand why it wouldn't be, you know, our soccer coach, you know, he, he likes a physical team, so he wants them to be stronger. He wants them to be faster. If I can prove that they've gotten there, he feels pretty good about it. Um, but again, that's just something that I've seen in our profession, track and field coaches, strength and conditioning coaches. Now it's getting a little bit better, um, you know, because we are there are coaches like Tony and there are coaches bringing speed development into um, the focus of attention. 
that, you know, I, I, I think has been a positive for um, not only our strength and conditioning profession, but also the sport of track and field. The more that we can get those kids, those, those football players, those soccer players, you know, whatever, whatever sport it is, it doesn't really matter what sport they come from, but having an experience in athletics on, I mean, I always uh, discuss how excited I get when we have either dancers or gymnasts or competitive cheerleaders uh, come out to our track and field program because I know they're going to be disciplined. They're going to be regimented. Um, and they're also just incredible athletes. The more kids in, in multiple sports or the more kids with an experience of sports growing up that can be out on the track, the better. We, we really don't want to limit our participation to, we won't, we don't want to limit it at all. That's why I kind of cast a big wide, uh, you know, a wide net of trying to get as many students out to our track as possible onto our team as possible um, and then we can kind of identify events and, and take things from there. Yeah. The, the multi-sport athletes is, is something else that I've really put a focus on as well in a couple of episodes and, and the benefits of having a multi-sport athlete uh, kids, you know, that obviously want to be involved in a variety of, of different sporting competitions and how that will lead to a actual better base for that kid in the long run and just a more holistic nature, essentially building it through competition. And there's just not a, a better place to build speed, obviously, than track and field. And there's not a better place to build some of the other qualities, such as the change of direction uh, and, and other things in football and basketball and other things of that nature. So multi-sport athletes, that's always a positive. It's always good. You, you mentioned talking to other coaches and having a good working relationship with them. That's a, a major factor as well, uh, having a good relationship and building on that. So, so to advance our conversation here on speed, something that I've noted watching a lot of your speed school stuff and just other videos you posted on social media is the use of wickets. So mm -hmm. if you could talk about how you utilize wickets to progress uh, speed training with your population. Sure. So first things first, you see a lot of wickets because I do video edits and the easiest way to do those video edits is with Wicked videos. So generally my video edits come from the Wicked videos versus some of their open sprints. So I just want to, I just want to preface everything with that, that it looks like, and I've spoken to other coaches that it's like, what do you do wickets every day? That's not. Well, that's I, I, I myself, I'm asking you because wickets can be beautiful and they can also be something that will drive a coach crazy because it's like kids, either they, they take to it or they have a very unnatural pattern whenever they get to them. So that's why I was. You're 1 million percent right. So another thing that kind of surprises some coaches that I talk to is I actually don't use wickets in my track and field team programming, period. All right. So I have our track and field program being we're actually a pre-K through 12 pool, but my, my program will start with our middle schoolers. This year we had less middle schoolers just from a COVID standpoint. We had to make some major adjustments, frankly, which is kind of team modeling. But generally, you'll have a large, large number of students from a wide, such a wide range of abilities, talking about from a sixth grader that it's kind of like, will they be doing this again tomorrow? Or are they going to stop today because they're not enjoying it and not seeing success to college bound seniors, division one bound seniors that we're all training together in some way, at least we're certainly doing some similar training methodologies, which again, I know, I know that might sound crazy, but here's why. And here's how to me, I look at everything from a uh, motor learning and development standpoint, from a skill acquisition standpoint. So 
one of the things that would probably be a knock on myself is I, with our young students, especially my investment is not so largely into X's and O's and, and being super precise in terms of, I don't want to say volumes because volumes are going to be as precise as we can be, but we are going to train very general in nature and we are going to use constraints and practices such as constraints to create the opportunity for the student to find their own solution. Now, I, sound, I know that sounds probably like just a wordy, ridiculous answer, um, and it might be, but the reason why I love wickets is because it enables the students to create their own solutions to a constraint in front of them. However, having such a wide range of abilities, it's just, it's quite frankly impossible, or I would have to adjust our spacings and also from a personal standpoint, have to certainly prepare myself going in because I can be a coach that gets flustered if practice doesn't go exactly how I expect it to. So a kid tips a hurdle and we got to run over and readjust them. It's just not going to be something that's going to be conducive to one of my practices uh, success. So I know that. And so I wanted to kind of find a way to enable the students to still be able to face a constraint, uh, to still be able to experience enough variance in our practices that keeps them engaged, but also causes and enables them and enforces them or forces them to create their own solution for a challenge that I put in front of them. So I love wickets, especially from a, a just a postural standpoint and a positional standpoint of what it does for our students at Upright Sprinting. But I also understand that it's probably not going to be a solution that's reasonable for us as a program. So value wickets. I use wickets on Saturdays because I have more time with our kids. Um, our younger kids that show up there, they might do them and run over some hurdles that are down. And it's not really, to be honest with you, for them, a wicket drill. I'm not worried about the spacing for those young, young kids. It's just a few minutes of our session that enables them to not feel like I'm sending them away from the older kids. All right. So on Saturdays, we use wickets quite a bit. Um, but through our practices, that's not going to be something that we do. And that's where some of our like hand variations and hand variants have come into the fold of finding to finding a way. So for wickets, having the foot come down to the ground under the hip, having our, uh, you know, a postural integrity again, giving the, op the athlete the opportunity to create their own solution. Sure, front side action, thigh, knee lift. Those are going to be reasons that we would use wickets. So understanding that we're not going to use wickets in our practices, and I don't feel like it's a solution that's reasonable for us, those hand variations and variants have become the way to kind of insert there to accomplish some of the same goals of enabling the athlete. Yes, I, I might cue them, and it's something I'm going to talk to in a second, but I might cue them on something small, but the variant is a cue in itself or the variant is a constraint in itself that the athlete has to solve a, and create a solution for. Speaking of like cueing and coaching, I know that personally, my, my words are not my strength. So I know that like coaching and cueing is, I'll be honest with you, that's just, I'm not a person that, that I feel like speaks incredibly well. And I also feel like I'm a person that will give in to kids sometimes if they ask for feedback, when that's not always the answer from certainly from a, a max velocity, from a sprinting standpoint, the feedback is not always the answer. So um, understanding that although I am certainly seeking to improve my cueing ability, 
I don't want to use a lot of words when we're out on the track. Um, so the less words I can use, I don't want to say the less words, the better. But if I can find some way for the students to feel what I want them to hear, I'm going to feel good about that practice. And I'm going to feel good about whatever variant we used or whatever it was that we used. So that's going to be a large part. And that's going to be a big, I, I, I hope I answered the question, but motor learning skill acquisition is a big piece for me. I don't feel like coaching and words is my biggest strength. So I've used some of these things to be my voice, to be my words that I've wanted to use. And ultimately, I think we've seen some benefit. I think we've seen benefit, not just in a, like I said, I like making those video edits. We've seen biomechanical improvements, quote unquote, or changes at least. And those have also led to sprint imp improvements and in, in performances on the track that I, I feel good about what we've done there. And, um, and again, we'll still use wickets on Saturdays if the kids want to come to that additional session, but otherwise they're going to, they're not going to be exposed to it too much um, on a weekly practice in a weekly practice. Yeah. All that makes a lot of sense to me because a lot of that terminology uh, is I'm most familiar with it from Bosch. So read, reading Bosch with degrees of freedom and motor learning and skill acquisition, all, all that makes a ton of sense to me. Sure. I, I don't know about others, but uh, it's all good. It's all very good stuff there because I, I see like the cueing thing. I've said this on other podcasts as well. I would rather put your body in a position to where it has to solve the problem rather than me try and solve the problem. Cause to me, I teach in the classroom as well. And I'm a, a strength and conditioning person. I don't want to provide all the answers to my students. I want to provide questions and then make them have to come up with answers uh, in, in their own unique ways. Because of course, we're all trying to shoot towards some semblance of uh, sprinting technique, but everybody's technique is going to vary slightly based off of what they have, their anatomy and, and other issues such as that. So a lot of the things you said there make a, make a ton of sense. Yeah, you're 100 you're 100% correct and uh, I mean at least I agree in that we don't want to force some technical model on everybody because my four best male sprinters ever forget about it. They don't even run anything close to each other. Their genetic makeup isn't anything close to each other. Their their technical model represents that. Same thing on the ladies side. I mean, I've got one girl who utilizes a a large degree of of front side action and another that utilizes quite a bit of backside action, but is able to accomplish really, really impressive times, which she's been able to put up, or at least, you know, we're pleased with her development. Um, that, you know, some things you don't want to change too much. Some things there might be adjustments that can be made, um, but still enabling that kind of um, ability for the student to hone their model, to make some adjustments. Yes. But, you know, the, the, one of the biggest curses for us is the fact that we were able to watch at least the bulk of Usain Bolt's career. And there's just no other human being that is like him that moves like him. And so if we continue to, if though, if that's the technical model, we try to put on all of our students, my five foot eight rocked up running back type that can still maybe run a sub 1100. They're just not going to move like Usain Bolt is, you know, um, so to so to expect that would uh, be poor practice as well. One of the things I kind of want to shift now, we've talked a little about speed and some of the different things that you utilize in your training there. I'd like to kind of shift a little bit to the S&C portion here. So the idea, what I've noticed is, it took note of as we've talked, is that you work with a variety of groups simultaneously, it seems, correct? Yeah, yeah. 
stay on the track a little bit more so than in the weight room, but I'm still pretty confident in saying our our eighth or ninth graders, some of which have great restrictions and need really, I don't want to say low level regressions, but significant regressions off of some of our movements. And then we'll have some athletes that are again, division one college bound that, you know, you're still talking about 14, 18 year old kids. Sure. They might have similar, maybe even personalities or interests, but move quite different. And, um, you know, so I wouldn't say necessarily, you know, like we don't have our like sixth grade girls in the weight room at the same time as some of our college bound football players or baseball players, but still at the same time, there's, there's, there's a range in there. Yeah, yeah, and most most SNC coaches would speak to that to a, a varying degree. But one thing I've taken note of, looking at some of the things that you presented, is the idea of auto regulation and individualizing workouts within a larger group context. So I would like to kind of talk about how you're able to implement that smoothly without making it extremely strenuous and counterproductive on the group's cohesion. Yeah. So same again. All of this comes back to the same point of. For me, I am going to put more into the motor learning skill acquisition cup than I am the sets, reps, X's and O's cup, if that makes sense. Now, beyond that, okay, so our technical progressions are our technical progressions. I don't really feel, I feel like there's many coaches that have better technical progressions than I do. Um, That is maybe something that's not quite auto-regulated that as the coach, it's up to me to make the decision if an athlete is ready to advance to the next movement or not. Um, I don't want to make it like I have some awesome, you know, um, checklist of how an athlete makes it there. It's not, it's not that again, there's, there's a lot qualitative that comes into the fold there from a volume standpoint, from an auto-regulation in terms of just, um, quantity of work, I suppose that's being done in the weight room. I, started uh, well first off kind of going back again influenced certainly by the tier system there's a lot of adjustments that have have come from that um i would say now i'm inspired by the tier system if you looked at it on paper it probably wouldn't look much like a a very specific um tier system style program but i would say certainly inspired by that still rotate our movements as such Um, still use similar movements as would be suggested in a tier system based approach through that. Then also, you know, just speaking with some high school coaches that I look up to um, that was kind of my first experience of APRE programming um, and just kind of understanding APRE. And then a, a really good conversation with Dr. Mann led me to kind of rethinking what our approach was to an APRE, because one of the things that I saw, and I, I hope I'm not getting off off task of, speaking to auto-regulation, but manipulating volume with an athlete's ability on a given day is ultimately what's happening with APRE. But what I would see with that adjusted final set with like that fourth set when an athlete and and if, if anybody's not familiar with an APRE system, basically it's you're working up to a, you know, it could be by a, by book terms, a rep max, and then you're aiming to, so say it's a six rep max, um, which it would it would be below that, obviously, if you're able to get um, eight reps. If you're able to get eight reps, you might add some some load. If you're able to get only four reps, you would lessen some load. And then you would do an adjusted set after that. So forgive me for kind of butchering and kind of sh- trying to shorten the explanation of APRE. But 
So what I would see with that adjusted set was it was just always hideous. Like it, it didn't matter. I loved the grit that our students showed in that PR type set that I saw that they were, they were, they really wanted it, which I loved. And they really wanted it so that they can go the adjusted set and add load. Right. I understand that. But then when we would go the adjusted set, it, it would just, especially on a bench press or something that the students really want to perform well at for the approval of their peers, they would almost always get pinned no matter how much I discussed technical failure or leaving a rep in the tank or whatever it might be so that I cut out the adjusted set. And then almost what that looks like from a progressive standpoint is then almost following more. (laughs) I don't want to get into too many systems and too many programs, but then into a little bit more of maybe what you would see from like a five, three, one, not necessarily in a five, three, one progression and rep scheme, but, but then we would adjust that next week, if that makes sense. So I know that's, that's like, I, I probably didn't answer that well, but instead of adjusting the set in the day, we would adjust the set for the next session. And then again, you still got to understand that the kid on that day, the reason why you do that adjusted set is probably to get the quality and quantity of work that they can accomplish that day. The next week, they're probably not going to, they're not going to be the same person. Um, but they still have the opportunity through that auto-regulated type approach. And then if we get to a point where, that system isn't benefiting our students. Like we would usually do that in higher volumes, you know, in our eight in our sixes, eights or tens, when we get down to lower volumes, I mean, the difference between a one and a two rep max is probably a lot bigger than the difference between a 10 and an 11 or 12 rep max. Um, a kid can really get after it one day and get 12 on his 10 or her 10. And, you know, you're probably not going to grind out a second rep if, if you're expecting it to be your, your one rep max. Um, so there, what we'll do is we'll work in some, bonus sets, some money sets, some money reps, things like that. Basically where they have the opportunity to, okay, you get a, you have a heavy single and you crush it. You can have the opportunity for another heavy single or two or three additional heavy singles at either that same load or heavier, depending on, you know, maybe that's a RPE. If it's a student that I trust, again, there's a, there's a lot of range in there um, from an auto-regulative standpoint. Um, and it really does depend on who the student is, who, what team we're with, what program we're with, what, point in the year we are. If you're a senior, you're going to have a lot of leeway and you're going to have a lot of say in your programming. And that's being completely candid and honest with you. I'm getting, my program is my program, but I'm going to receive a lot of feedback from our veterans, our juniors and seniors that have come up in the program, that they listened to everything I said my fresh, their freshman and sophomore year. And they did it by the book as how I said they would. And then when they're, when they're in their senior year, they might have some um, some say in, in what goes into their programming. And, and again, just kind of generally, especially for our, like our track athletes in season or even our football players in season, I want them to feel not only good in that competition, I want them to feel good about their ability to have say in their program and confidence in what's coming of the program. So I want, I want them to have some say in it. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. It builds buy-in. We spoke to the fact that you're working with a variety of kids at one time. So you have to be fluid in the way that you handle that. I, I would say that in strength and conditioning, it, it's hard because it's it's almost like you're letting go a little bit and, and you're letting the kids uh, ha- have some say. But as far as learning, the, the more input you get from the people that are actually involved in the learning and the movement, the more buy-in you're going to get. You're going to get as a group out of it because – 
an 18 year old and, an, and another 18 year old, they're not the same person. They, they probably have different capabilities and everything you spoke to there is, is a way to do that. It might not be the most simple thing for everyone to understand, but even between 18 year olds, you see huge variance in their capabilities. So all that makes a ton of sense. One more thing I want to discuss with you is the idea of ballistic throws, because I think that's a really simple place to start people off with med ball tosses and throws. And uh, I've, I've seen you discuss the importance of using them to assess athletes' kinematic sequences or the way that they sequence movement. So can you discuss kind of how you advance that through your training and how you utilize that to look at how athletes move? As a thrower, through my time hammer throwing, this is just using a complete anecdotal experience. I had never felt as explosive, quite frankly, fast. Um, as I did when I was hammer throwing and we were, we actually weren't doing much speed work on the track. I was a collegiate thrower and we were just doing what we did at throws practice. There wasn't much speed development that was going into it, but we still tested, um, in a pentathlon type thing that our coaches put together. And I felt like my, I, I had, I had never been faster. And so there had to be some value in that. Number one, um, probably what we were doing training wise in the weight room had a large bit to do with that. But also I think the throws and kind of our, um, our commitment to not just, and, and there also was a lot of variance there too. So, you know, I think hammer throwers are really throwers in general. And that comes from Bonderchuk's work of, um, not just varying load and kind of a bracketing technique of above and below. And I'm sure coaches did that even before Bonderchuk. So I don't want to knock anybody else or miss out on anybody. That's just where I was able to hear it and learn it some of those bracketing techniques based on load and then also just variance in the approach to practice of the throws. Again, I just felt really explosive and fast and for lack of better terms, but I don't think I need to use better terms than that. That's frankly how I felt. So um, with that, then we haven't touched on the Olympic lifts, which coming from a tier system, Frank Wichert, Frank Wintrick at North Texas, we were running, we were operating a tier system without the Olympic lifts. Um, which to me still with our high school students and the wide variance of who we have, that's not a large part of our program. We are still teaching them is a large part of our program as a progressive way so that our juniors and seniors, if they're college bound and they're going to a program that's going to use them, I'm, I want them to be prepared for them. But programming wise and writing them in our, our program, that's going, not going to be a large thing, a uh, large thought for me. However, there are things that I feel like we're missing if we don't have that in the program. So a couple of those things, I feel like the finality and the, the finish of receiving a bar in Olympic lift is something that's myth missed. It is quality that I think is missed if we're only doing the polls, which we are only doing the polls. So there were some ways that um, I knew that we were going to have to catch up somewhere else on that. And also, like I had mentioned, kind of just the teaching progression of it and just the confidence that maybe comes with it. But so understanding that if we're doing our med ball throws, there's really not a deceleration component to it, right? So depending on what position you're starting from, if you're loading and, and throwing, yeah, there might be a, um, a coil effect, so to speak. But if you're just doing a med ball throw where you're starting from the ground or something of the like, um, there's, there's a consistent and continuous acceleration of the med ball that, that then led, okay. Yeah. Looking at the sequencing of how the athlete's body was moving was something that was important for us to look at. And some thinking of, 
of why we were using it, but also going into some other progressions and kind of learning first how to sort of, I, I don't really want to use the um, saying that I used a few years ago, but learning how to load before you explode and, and trying to learn how to really sequence the movement sometimes would work by reversing it. And that, that also presents itself for us some, with some things that we do on the track and, and also leading into our jumps. But so going into some like catch progressions and absorbing load through that same way through each uh, movement plane, which is something that you can do with the throws that you probably can't necessarily easily do with the barbell. So we went into, again, some catching progressions and some different speeds and, and ballistics of the movement that we feel like has presented some good things for us. Um, and that's really, you know, why we've used it and still use it in our, in our track programming. Um, it might not, you know, through the track season, it might not follow a very sp specific detail of a, of a progression. Like I would maybe in the summer of, again, maybe catches and then catches to throws or throws, you know, whatever it may be. When we're going through our, our track season, we're using it as a, as a piece to our training. But ultimately, it comes down to throwing something light or moderate or heavy. Um, and throwing it as far or as high or as, as aggressively and violently as possible, I think has been uh, really helpful in, in helping our athletes continue to develop as, as that as athletes. Yeah, all, all that makes a lot of sense. And, and looking at the sequence of a throw, it's just really easy to look at the body and how it's moving in a throw and, and see what the drivers are behind a movement because the human body is really good at compensation and uh, driving movement sometimes in, in manners that might not be the most optimal. So utilizing sure. that, I could see that, especially with, with the younger athletic populations being something that would be easy to use to assess. So before we get to resources that, that you would like to throw out there, I want to end with one more question. It's a quote I really liked from you. It was the idea of not letting today ruin tomorrow, both physically and spiritually. Uh, you said that you'd mentally let sometimes today ruin tomorrow, uh, meaning that you'd be frustrated and you would mentally be captured by that for the rest of practice. And on the next day, you would try and push to fix things even harder. So how has that shifted your philosophy as a coach about how you view improvement and just continued progression? Yeah, I mean, I actually was I actually was just talking to one of our students yesterday. Our district championship was this week. We had a lot of really good performances and just like any other competition, you're going to have performances that aren't what you hope for and it's not necessarily as a coach, it's not I don't want to say it's something that I expect, but you know it's going to happen. We don't we don't perform the best every day. It's not that's completely unrealistic an unfortunate side effect of of sports especially track and field and i think it leads to burnout for a lot of of, of young people is you have like one of those days that is just everything goes the way it's supposed to it's magic and then for the rest of your career and the rest of your days you're just chasing that day that day will come again and all of your training leading up after that last magic day is going to present itself in another performance improvement, but you might not see an improvement for years in this sport. And people still understand you got to have patience and understand that that's something that comes with the sport and that's a reality of the sport. So that as important as it is for the sport, I think has been more important for me in my personal life in understanding that things like that happen. No coaching high school kids, you know, this like, Number one, no two days are going to be the same ever, but understanding that you're going to have, you're, you are going to have bad days, quote unquote. 
And so one of the things that I felt as though not only not letting today ruin tomorrow by piling so much on today or like even just like I had said, I had touched on it a little bit with the wickets. Like I know one of my coaching tendencies is when I feel like I'm losing control of my practice, I lose it. And so uh, the wisest person that I know on campus, a good friend of mine, um, and I, I have to ask him because I butcher this quote, but it was something like, if you're yelling, that is proof that you've lost control of a situation, ultimately. So I'm not saying I'm a yeller, but I know that when I get frustrated, I lose it, I shut down and everything becomes flustered and I'm seeing like all different clouds of gray and it's like, what's going on? So then not only then is that day's practice ruined and then I feel like I have to adjust something on the next day as a coach that that needs to happen. Instead, what I try to stress to, our, stress to our student athletes and myself is never taking a bad day as a bad day. Understanding that bad days are going to happen. You have to look at those days and think, okay, well, now what is there that I can look at that day and make sure doesn't happen again so that something like that doesn't present itself again? So as a competitive athlete, understanding, all right, so, and this came from throwing one, one million percent because in football, you watch film. And I think, I think a tendency for, and this is, I'm like, I'm a football guy. So if I, if I, I never discredit or say anything down to football coaches, I'm not necessarily, I don't coach on campus, but I'm saying like, that's, I'm a football guy. So if I, I felt like through my football career, like watching film, when you, when you receive negative criticism, so to speak, or you receive any criticism, it is received as negative. It's typically like, you did this wrong. You know, what are you thinking? Blah, blah, blah. Like, again, that's just a culture of the sport. I'm not, I might be saying that there's a better way to do it, but I'm not discrediting or, um, or, or saying how any coaches are doing it wrong. But when I, when I then took the practice of film study into my new sport, which was track and field, particularly hammer throwing, but largely a lot of that homework was done on myself or done by myself. I mean, my coach was still viewing it and, and giving feedback, but I wanted to see and wanted to look at what could be improved. My bad days, I now flip to understanding or thinking of them as good days because now there was something from that day that I can take and correct and improve. So instead of looking at it as, and I would be a person just the same way as when I was competing. If I had a bad practice, I was frustrated. Don't talk to me for 24 hours because I would be the worst person to be around. I would be a miserable mope and just not a good person to be around. Had to, had to change that. Otherwise, I would not survive in a professional climate, would not survive in any of my relationships either. So knew that I wanted to adjust that from the jump as an athlete. So now, again... It could be something as simple as, as film study in that instance, but it's much larger in a personal life and just thinking back to experiences. But now again, that bad day, it wasn't a bad day. In fact, it was a good day because I, was, I now had something that I can improve on to make sure that the next day was better. So the same thing goes for practice. Don't change. I don't want to change my practice script for the next day. Like there's a reason why I laid it out this way. However, understand that a kid's going to have – a kid's going to break up with his or her boyfriend, girlfriend on campus and isn't going to be a good, a fun person to be around for a day. Okay. I'm that way sometimes too. I'm probably not a, the most fun person to be around every single day either. 
So understanding that that's going to happen, understanding that as a group, we're going to have bad days and there's going to be bad practices, quote unquote, but there's something positive that can always be taken from that. I don't think you even have to then worry about ruining tomorrow because tomorrow is going to be better in and of itself because you're already looking more positively at today and making adjustments in a positive direction, not making adjustments to then load a whole bunch of stuff on for the next day. Instead, it's approaching each day with an understanding of something can go wrong today and that's all right. You know, and if you approach with that, and since I've started trying to approach with that, our practices have gone much more smoothly. I, I feel like I'm an easier person to be around. I feel like, you know, our students generally receive that well. You know, I think their performances uh, present that as well. Yeah, a lot of the things you said there, I feel like this has kind of flowed throughout the entire conversation, essentially. The fact that you have to be able to ebb and flow as you go throughout everything that you do. If you're if you're concrete, concrete's going to break up eventually whenever it's put sure. under a certain amount of stress. So I've heard that through so many different answers, the ability to ebb and flow. Speaking from my own experience this last year with COVID, uh, being a strength and conditioning coach and trying to do an in-season program, I probably had to change my programming 15 to 20 times because we would have a canceled game or things would get shifted around. And I learned more about programming and about my role just through going through all those different changes than I ever have whenever it was laid out in a cookie cutter fashion for you. And whenever you can take a step back and see the bigger picture of things, it's hard to in that moment, as you've alluded to, you're in your emotions, it's a bad day, you're thinking about all the things that have gone wrong, but whenever you can step back and see the big picture, you see what you're really painting from, from a distance, but that's something that's really hard to step back and do. So the last thing I'd like to kind of end with is give you an opportunity to talk about any resources you have out there, or any resources that you've utilized that you feel like are, are good for the uh, listeners. I'm more than happy to point people in direction of other resources instead. Like, and, and that'll kind of lead into, I guess, any resources that I do have, but certainly like one of the big changes for me from a coaching standpoint, especially in coaching the sprints, um, really just coaching sprint ability and, um, and training methods, uh, the Altus courses were, were very impactful for me. And in particular, the Kinogram method was something that was really, it, it struck a nerve for me when I first had read about it and knew it was something that I wanted to use. And then I think kind of had been something I continued to use and started to use. I, I started to like superimpose some pictures. And so that way I think it, it, it creates a really clear um, image. So off of the Altus Kinogram method, I have used those same positions. I'm looking for much the same things. I've just kind of presented it in a way that you can kind of have everything in the same frame of what their sprint would have been through that video. So I have some, I mean, my, my social media is my way to connect with coaches, really connect with everybody. Um, and, you know, Instagram's probably the best way, coach underscore Garish. I have some of those um, kinogram type of um, layout presentations and slideshows of how to do it. Um, that's, that's probably the only thing, <laughs> the only thing I got, but um, I would, I would definitely suggest coaches looking in the direction of Altus and all of the information that they've put out. Certainly yeah, it could be track and field driven, but I think, you know, especially with their courses now that they're looking at field sports, but also I think there's just, I think there's a lot that can come from learning um, from, from track and field for us strength and conditioning coaches that has, has certainly, I feel like made me a better coach in the weight room, just the same way that I think some things that I've learned in the weight room or just kind of my experiences early in my career 
have have hopefully made me a more successful track coach. Well, I just want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down with me. I'll link your Twitter and your Instagram accounts on the uh, podcast notes whenever we get this out. Just thank you for taking time with me today. Of course, man. Thank you. I appreciate the time and opportunity. Thanks for tuning in this week. I hope you took a lot away from Coach Garish and how he runs a successful track and field program as well as a successful sports prep program at his school. Don't forget to subscribe to keep up with the latest content and leave a rating and review if you feel led to do so.